This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 75, Black Week. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. As a lover of history, I tend to look to the past for answers about the present and sometimes even the future. And in this new world of global pandemics uh, and viruses, I keep reminding myself that this could have been what the people of 1918 felt like. And also, I try to remember that many, many people came out of that terrible event just fine. Recently, I found myself drawn to times in Atlanta's history where things felt dark and overwhelming. And although it feels kind of morbid, um... I think there's some value in looking back in hindsight and taking something from the past and at the very least taking out the knowledge that this too shall pass. Black Week is a time in Atlanta's history where the city certainly felt like things would never pass. And it's a bit of a misnomer because it's actually a one-month period during which Atlantans opened up the newspaper almost every day to find horrible news after horrible news. With a population of just around 65,000, the city still had a little bit of a small town feel and collectively had never seen such tragedy in such a short time frame. A content warning that I'm going to be talking a lot about death, suicide, and murder, so if you are looking for upbeat content, this is not your episode. Similar to 2020, the first months of 1893 were rough for Atlantans. The year started off with something the city still fears today, snow. Beginning with unseasonably cold days, by January 18th, eight inches of snow covered the ground. Local lakes and ponds were frozen over, and a rare opportunity for ice skating lifted spirits. On January 24th, at around 6 p.m., the first tragedy of Black Week occurred. The Metropolitan Hotel stood at the corner of Pryor and Alabama Streets, and in room 29, Italian woodcarver Umberto Piantini held his lover, Salida Muge, in a warm embrace. He then raised a gun to her head and shot her, and as she fell, he raised the gun to his own head and pulled the trigger. Hotel patrons and the owners of the hotel ran upstairs. Police patrolman Beavers enters the room not long after to find both lovers in an embrace on the floor laying in a pool of blood. But as he shook Umberto's arm, he realized they were both still alive. He's barely conscious, and she's completely unconscious. Within five minutes, doctors are called to the scene and the police turn their attentions to the notes left on the table, labeled with a sentence, deliver these letters to our parents. See, here's where it gets a little complicated. Umberto's father was a wealthy local Italian immigrant who had remarried after his first wife's death. He married Mrs. Moog, an equally wealthy widow with three daughters, the eldest Salida. Yes, Umberto was married and having an affair with his newish stepsister. The note to the father says, quote, in this moment that we are happy. In an hour and a half, we will be dead. Please bury us in the same coffin in Oakland Cemetery and plant ivy on our grave, end quote. Mrs. Moog was the lesser injured of the couple as the bullet had gone through her ear, but not through her head. Umberto was taken to Grady Hospital, and on the 27th of the month, his wife visits him and sits by his bed for over an hour. The following day, he would be dead. And the headlines in the paper would state that he sleeps alone. Without funeral rites, his body is carried to Westview Cemetery, not Oakland, like he wished, and interred alone. Salida recovers, and just a few months later, she actually marries an older Italian man named Joe Piotti, who had cared for her when she was healing from her January wounds. 
Incident number two of Black Week came on February 17th. Aaron Raphael was the son of a well-to-do clothier from Boston. At 19, he started working at the family business until a recent bicycle accident took him out of work temporarily. Without much explanation, um, I think he told his family he just kind of needed to go on a trip. He booked a train to Atlanta, um, got himself a room at the Kimball House, room 416, and he sat down to write a note. And it said, quote, whoever finds my body... My name is Raphael. My father is Mr. Raphael of Boston. Notify him I shot myself because I am tired, end quote. And just like our first story, Aaron did not immediately die after pulling the trigger. Instead, he lay for two days in the hotel, being tended to by Dr. Huzza and Dr. Elkin. The entire time, though, he is expressing his wish to die. His father was notified by telegram, and he replies that he wanted all the care afforded to him, and he would pay any amount to save his son's life. Three doctors were sent in rotation, and even Rabbi Reich visited to talk to the young man. He wanted no part, waved the rabbi out of the room, and refused to take the prescribed medicine from the doctors. All the while, he refused to speak of his motives or give any details. And the next day, he was dead. On the 21st, his eldest brother arrives from Boston, books a room at the Kimball house as well, and he expressed to reporters that he and his family were blindsided and they didn't know any of Aaron's motives. He suspected that maybe the bike accident had affected him, um, and that's the only thing he could think of. Uh, he would return north with his brother's body for burial. The third event is thankfully not a suicide, but it still rocked the city of Atlanta residents. Gate City Bank was founded in 1875 as the Atlanta Savings Bank and was originally inside the Kimball House until that caught fire and it relocated to Pryor and Alabama streets. No one expected that 1893 would be its last year in business. Mr. Laud J. Hill was the president, and around February 22nd, he got a report bank employee Louis Redwine had taken out a large withdrawal of $25,000. Today, that's about $72,000, so it's a lot of money. It's definitely a red flag. Louis was 32, a respected citizen, social climber. He was son of Columbus Redwine, who was a doctor and pharmacist in early Atlanta. Um, and he had an apartment at the Kimball House, and he was a member of the Capital City Club. All that to say that Hill was not immediately worried when he heard the news. He assumed Redwine took it out for a customer and, you know, just called him to figure it out. So he places a call to Louis's office, asks him to come up. Um, Louis Redwine says, sure, no problem, hangs up. They never saw him. Sadly, the bank ended up closing because it turns out it wasn't just $25,000. It was $100,000 that he took. And this was just too much to recover from. The next day, more terrible headlines were added to Black Week with the news of the death of Tom Cobb Jackson, a close friend of Lewis Redwine's. Thomas was a son of a prominent citizen, Captain Jackson. He was a graduate of Boys High and then later UGA. And when he graduated, he joined his father's law practice, and he was listed as counsel to Gate City Bank. The press said he took the news of his friend's embezzlement and disappearance really poorly, and he suffered from, quote, mental aberration of work and worry, end quote. And those close to him said he was pretty despondent for the two days after. He and his father rode home from the office in their carriage, and it stopped at their house at 121 Capitol Square. His father exits and starts walking for the front door, but is stopped by a muffled shot. And he walks back to the carriage, opens the door, and his son falls out, slumped and dead from a self-inflicted bullet wound to the head. Captain Jackson grabs the help of a passing soldier and drags his son's body into the house and then calls for Dr. Baird, who lives just two doors down. There was nothing to be done. In all of Black Week, this was the first successful suicide attempt, and Tom was dead.
By February 24th, there was a $1,000 reward for anything that led to Redwine's capture. A few days later, he is found at a house um, on Rockwell Street, which is in the Pittsburgh neighborhood, and he's trying to go by the name of Mr. Lester. He was arrested, charged, and sentenced to the penitentiary. But just five years later, he was pardoned by President McKinley. When he died, he was buried in an unmarked grave in the Redwine family plot at Oakland Cemetery. For anyone that's had tickets to capturing the spirits this past year, um, the Redwine story will sound familiar because he was the last stop on the tour, and he was played by a really great actor. Also on February 24th, the fourth tragedy happened. W.D. Crowley was a traveling salesman with a serious drinking problem. In love with a woman from Marietta, we don't really know the sordid details here, but she wrote him a letter saying that his drinking was an issue and they could not be together. So what does he do? He goes to Vaughn's saloon to drown his sorrows. The bartender there said he was very talkative, continually speaking about Louis Redwine and Thomas Cobb Jackson and how they had just died and the former ended his life. And there was a lot of speculation around the city about whether Thomas Cobb Jackson had a hand in the embezzlement because, um, you know, it was kind of excessive maybe that he killed himself over this. But he and the bartender chat and after several drinks, he actually convinces a friend at the bar with him to take a stumbling stroll through the city. And this is just a random piece of information, but it made me laugh so much. They ended up self-touring through the Capitol building downtown and stopping under each portrait, which was in the gallery, and kind of making fun of each one. He comes home to his rented room at 135 Ivy Street and shoots himself in the chest. Dr. Purse was the first physician on the scene and did all he could to keep Crowley alive. The man's brother was summoned and stood by his side while the doctor worked. And when the doctor finally realized that the bullet had actually exited his back, he expressed that you know, he might be okay. But Crowley was despondent. He says, quote, doctor, leave me alone. I'm going to die. And in less than an hour, end quote. By 7 p.m. that night, the words rang true. His body was prepared and sent for burial in Roswell, where his father owned the Roswell Manufacturing Company. With news of the forced suicide in two weeks, the newspaper prints an epidemic of crime seems to have been hovering over Atlanta for nearly a month. Just one day after Crowley's death, the last event of Black Week occurred. On February 25th, Julia Force shot and killed both of her sisters. The daughter of an early Atlanta shoe merchant, Julia was only in her mid-30s and described as a monomaniac, which is defined as a person obsessed with one thing. And that thing was that her sisters were her enemies and out to get her. In reality, we can assume she was dealing with severe mental illness, but this is 1893 and there's just limited understanding or resources for people with mental illness. In Julia's mind, her entire family abused her, treated her as a slave, and the last straw was when her brother instructed the high department store in downtown Atlanta to no longer extend her credit for purchases. At their home on Crew Street and Woodward Avenue, which is now really the center of the downtown connector, Julia's mother left to run errands. Julia then sent the two servants away from the home and proceeded to grab her gun and find her sisters. Her sister Minnie was shot and died instantly, and she walked to the room of her sister Florence and shot her, and she would die a few hours later. Julia then calmly gets her things and heads to the police station to turn herself in. And there was a big trial, complete with testimonies, drawings, um, three doctors testified, her mother, her brother, and Julia herself even took the stand, stating that she was, quote, not insane. A jury of 18 men took all of five minutes to conclude that she was not guilty for reasons of being of an unsound mind. She was sent to the state insane asylum in Milledgeville, and it was there that she died in 1916. 
So there you have it, the story of Black Week, a full month of crime, death, despair, and tragedy. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts, and then head on over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Archive Atlanta, where you can find bonus content and mini episodes for as little as a dollar a month. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.